Thank you. Yeah, y'all can grab a seat. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them or turn them on, and let's open to 2 Timothy together. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy. I was, uh, I was just over there during scripture reading feeling a sneeze coming on. Um, so if it comes while I'm preaching, I apologize. I don't have COVID, and nothing is more terrifying than sneezing during this season. So I just forgive me. Uh, my family and I, we, we were uh, at Frontier City last night, and um, everyone's masked there and, and all that, but I sneezed while I was there, and it was just one of those, like, it's allergy season, and I, I feel like I want to wear a shirt that just says I have allergies, because people looked at me like they were um, not, none too happy with me, none too happy. All right, Second Timothy, let's pray together. Let's ask for God's help. We need it as we turn to his word, and then we'll get after it. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have, through the sacrifice of your son in our place, gathered us here um, to do what we ought not do apart from Christ's sacrifice, to come before you, to offer worship, uh, to come into your presence. All, all that we do tonight, it is only through Jesus in our place, and Jesus in our place, place even now. Um, Christ, we want to see you. We, we want to be satisfied with you through your word. And we need your Spirit's help for that to happen. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would do what you love to do, what you've been sent to do, to, to open our eyes to see and to open our ears to hear. I pray that you would meet us through your word. It's in your name, Jesus. It's through you, because of you, for you, that we've gathered this evening. Amen. Hey, well, if you've not been with us as we've been walking through this letter uh, called 2 Timothy, l let me tell you a bit what this is about. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's totally okay. Uh, 2 Timothy is a letter written by a guy called Paul to a young, his young protege in ministry, uh, Timothy. Timothy is this pastor at a, at a pretty quickly growing church in a city called Ephesus, and Timothy is facing opposition just like Paul is. Now, Paul finds himself in prison um, because he kept saying this crazy thing that there was a king other than, than uh, Caesar. And during this time, there was, there was one king, and that was Caesar, and Paul kept saying, no, there's one king, and it's Jesus, and there's one kingdom, and it's not Rome. And so they throw him into prison, and Paul knows that he's going to be put to death this time, and so he's writing this second letter to Timothy. And in this letter, he's passing the torch of ministry to Timothy. He's telling Timothy, I want you to carry on the task that I've given my life to, and that's to make much of Jesus and to plant churches that are going to continue this gospel message going forth. And so he's been sharing with, with Timothy in this letter these different metaphors for following Jesus, these different pictures of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so this evening, he's going to give us another picture for what it looks like to be a disciple, another metaphor for discipleship. Now, put as simply as I can, discipleship is following Jesus and helping others follow Jesus. And so he said, hey, following Jesus involves the single-minded devotion of a soldier. We heard that a couple weeks ago. It involves the discipline of an athlete the perseverance of a hardworking farmer. And with all of these pictures, he was reminding Timothy and the church at Ephesus and us, Frontline Church, he's reminding us that we're called to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, following Jesus. And so this week, Paul wants us to see that God calls us, the people of Christ, 
to be set apart for a noble purpose in his household, which is the church. That's what he wants us to see, that we're called to be set apart for a noble purpose in his household. And so here's how we're going to see this today. We're going we're gonna to track with Paul's flow of thought through these verses. Now, before I do this, um, sometimes it's a bit confusing, and that's okay, right? Even Peter, P- Peter's writing a letter, and he's talking about Paul's letters, and he's like, hey, sometimes they're hard to understand. Sometimes it's hard to flow with his train of thought, right? That encourages me because even Peter, who the Spirit writes Scripture through him, sometimes has a hard time. So here's his flow of thought. First, he wants us to see what does God want in verses 20 through 21. He wants us to see what does God want. Second, how do we get there? So what does God want? Second, how do we get there? We'll see that in verses 22 through 25. And then lastly, why should we do it? What does God want? How do we get there? Why should we do it in verses 25 and 26? Those three questions will, will frame up our, our day uh, tonight. So first, what does God want? Verses 20 and 21. Look, look at what he says in verse 20. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but of wood and of clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. So he's given us this picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus in the household of Jesus. And so he says, hey, there's this big house, like a mansion, right? And in that house, some of the utensils, some of the pots and pans, some of the dishes, some of the silverware are made of gold and silver, and some of the containers are made of wood and clay. Um, Now, because we have running water and um, plumbing and and septic tanks, like even if you live way out in the country, you, you got some sort of septic tank out there, it's hard for us to understand exactly what he's saying. So in a house during this time, there would be items made of gold and of silver, and those were special. Those were to be used on special occasions. You would feast off of those things. You would drink wine with friends out of those things. And then he's like, hey, y'all know there's also vessels used, vessels of wood and of clay. And people would have known immediately, yeah, that's where we put garbage, and that's where we put human waste, and those kind of get taken out of the house. Paul's trying to help us understand like, that God wants us to be set apart for a special purpose in his house, to be those items made out of gold and of silver. So look how he applies this metaphor. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So Paul's saying, hey, our desire ought to be, because of what King Jesus has done, that we would be vessels set apart, used uh, for, good, for good work. Now, the foundation for what he's saying is actually where, where uh, we ended last week in verse 19, where he said, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the, the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Depart from sin. Reject unrighteousness is what he's saying. So there's two things that he's holding in tension. One, that God knows those who are his. God's going persevi- to keep those who are his. We're going to persevere because God's going to hold on to us, not because we're going to hold on to God so well. That's what he's saying. The Lord knows those who are his. And he's holding that intention with our responsibility to pursue holiness. God knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from, reject, say no to unrighteousness. Those two things are held in tension. God's ability to keep us and our responsibility to pursue holiness. 
So we need to remember as we get into what does it look like to be set apart because that's what God wants for us to be holy, to be set apart to him. We need to remember that Jesus has given us a new identity, that God promises to hold us fast, that our persevering is not because of how good we're going to be at it, but how tight his grip is on us. We'll persevere not because of the strength of our own grip, but because of the strength of his grip. In Jesus, the living God has drawn near to us. Not with judgment, but with forgiveness. Not with punishment, but by taking punishment in our place. God has drawn near to us in Christ, not holding over our heads our rap sheet that lists everything that we've done, but holding over our heads and offering to us adoption papers where we're brought into the very family of God. And so what Paul is trying to help Timothy and us get is in light of that identity, in light of what Christ has done, live lives of holiness. Live lives that are set apart. Lives where we follow Jesus by over and over and over again saying no to sin and saying yes to Jesus. That's what repentance is, where we say no to sin and we turn our back on sin and turn our face towards God in Christ. We live lives that are set apart. And he shows us three different things when it, as, it, uh, as it relates to us pursuing holiness. First, he wants us to be set apart. He says, hey, be set apart, be cleansed. This is what it means to be cleansed, our life and our doctrine. Following Jesus, again, is saying yes to Jesus and no to sin over and over and over again because of his spirit's presence and power in our lives. Now, this may sound off to you, right? Be cleansed. I thought that's what Jesus has done for us. We're supposed to now be cleansed. Here's an important phrase to, to just hang on to in all of life. We work from identity, not for identity. We, we cleanse our life and our doctrine by saying yes to Jesus and no to sin over and over and over again because we've already been cleansed from our sin through Christ's sacrifice in our place. We work from our identity as sons and daughters, not for our identity. So if you're in here and, and, and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, maybe you grew up in the church and you're like, hey man, what I walked away with was all the stuff that I needed to do to be made right in the eyes of God, that God would be proud of me. That's not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is Christ has done everything necessary to bring you into the family of God. And now we, in response to the grace that's been given to us, live lives of holiness, lives where we say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Dallas Willard is helpful here. He, he says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. This is what Paul's saying in Philippians 2, where he says to another church, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Like, give evidence in your lives of what Christ has done for you, but look what he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's this mysterious thing that happens where we pursue holiness by saying yes to Jesus and no to sin, and Paul says that's good and right. We should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, not earn our own salvation, and then he says, but it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
We want to live lives that are set apart. Then he says that, that we, sh- we, want, we ought to desire to be useful to Jesus, to be useful to the master of the house. We, we want to be set apart to be useful to the master of the house, to Jesus. We remember that Jesus is not just our older brother who brings us into the family of God, but he's our king. And you follow kings. You, you don't negotiate with kings. You don't look at a king's demands and say, hey, these ones I agree with and these ones seem logical to me and so I'm going to follow you here, but I'm not going to follow you here. No, we want to be useful to our king, not to earn our status, but because he's already purchased it. And then 30 says to be ready for every good work. We want to be set apart. We want to be useful to King Jesus and ready for every good work. This is what he says, actually, in Ephesians 2, verse 10. He's writing to the same church that that Timothy is a pastor of. And he says, for we, those of us who are in Christ, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's desire for us, his people, is that we would live lives of holiness, lives set apart unto Jesus, useful for Jesus, ready for every good work in the name of Jesus. That's what God wants for us to live set apart lives. So now let's ask the question, how do we get there? How do we get there? Paul actually gives us the answer. He tells us, and he gives us two commands, each with their own description. He's going to tell us to flee something and to pursue something. We want to be set apart. That's what he's calling us to. And we're set apart by fleeing something and pursuing something. Look at what he says in verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must not be argumentative, must not be combative in how he has disagreements with people, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So how do we get there? We're to be set apart by fleeing youthful passions. By fleeing youthful passions. Now, he's talking about something very specific here. Um, it would be easy for us to just think about what are youthful passions that we need to, we need to flee sexual immorality, out-of-control lust, whatever. That, that's true, and it's, and it's biblical, and it's right, but he actually has something really specific in mind. So th- this is where you've got to track with what he's doing. He says in verse 22, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then in the next two verses, he gives a, he gives a description of what they're to flee and what they're to, they're to pursue. So he gives us exactly what he means that we're to flee from in verse 23. Have nothing to do with, flee, reject, run away from. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Uh, The word there is, is word battles, right? Like literal combat without swords, without weaponry. That's what he's getting after. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. The youthful passion that he's encouraging us to flee is our need to be right. <laughs> when I was in my early 20s, much of my life was defined by, this is what I believe, and I'm going to show everyone that I'm right and they're wrong. And so you just kind of come out looking for an argument, right? You, you come out, this is like 
I don't know if any of y'all have been to seminary. I'm not going to have you raise your hands. But, but you know, man, it's easy to come out of seminary. And I, I, went to, I went to seminary actually later in life, but it's easy to come out like, oh, where's the arguments? I'm going to show people they're wrong, that I'm right. I'm here to win. And Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, reject that, man. It doesn't lead anywhere good. That's not how Christ lived. He's calling us to reject this youthful angst that needs to prove itself. If you think about it, this is often how we leave our parents' home and enter the world. I'm here to prove myself, and I'm going to do it by showing people that I'm right about whatever I believe, right? He's saying reject that youthful angst. It's a youthful angst that needs to be seen as right, that needs constant validation, that, that word battles with everyone and anyone who would disagree. And Paul's saying, don't fall into that trap. It is so easy, not just in 2020, but certainly in 2020, to be known more for what you're against than what you're for. To be known more for how you argue than what you're actually for. And Paul's saying, hey, reject that youthful angst. Flee from that. Then he gives us, on the positive side, something to pursue. So how do we get there? Being set apart, lives unto Jesus, useful to Jesus, ready for every good work. We flee that youthful angst and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So before we see the description of what he's telling us to pursue, notice that he says we do this along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You don't do this alone. Lone rangers are dead rangers. Like this is why we care so much, not just about gathering as the church, but scattering as the church into community groups where we remember this mission that we have to multiply gospel communities who love God, love people, and push back darkness, that we don't do that as individuals. We do that in community, as the people of God, as we gather and as we scatter. So we pursue these things, not as individuals either. We do it as the people of God in community. And he explains how we're to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace in verse 24. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must not be argumentative, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He says, The way that you pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace is by engaging opponents with kindness and gentleness while patiently enduring evil, which sounds exactly like Christ. This is exactly how Christ lived and how Christ walked, and this is what Paul is calling us to. Now, he's not saying that we passively back down all the time, that we don't ever stand up for anything. That's not what Jesus modeled. What Jesus did model is that when he stood for the truth, and he always stood for the truth, when he did, he did it with kindness and with gentleness. Um, I don't know if you knew, but this past week there was a, a little thing on TV, the presidential debates were on. I don't know if anyone, no, no one heard. In, okay. Well, if you didn't watch them, um, you didn't miss much, but, but what was on display was the exact opposite of what Paul is calling us to. It, it was argumentative, combative, known more for what they're against than what they're for. And, and I only use that as an example of like, that's not what should mark the people of God. 
when we engage with those who disagree, we do it with kindness and with gentleness, patiently enduring evil just like Christ did. Now, anytime, um, anytime you talk about kindness and gentleness, meekness, Jesus had a lot to say about those things. There's always this kind of weird objection. And it's like, hey, I'm a table flipper. Jesus flipped tables, I flip tables. I'm just here to flip tables, right? There's this weird objection that always comes up. And it's strange to me because we have one story where Jesus flipped tables in a three-year ministry where, like, everything else is marked by kindness, gentleness. Then the other thing, and I'm going to be careful not to go on too much of a rabbit trail, but the reason that he flipped tables is because there were people who were keeping folks from the very presence of God. And Jesus came to rip the temple curtain in two and to pave the way so that we might have access to God. So what was happening when Jesus flipped tables? I I just think sometimes we have this picture of Jesus that when he comes in and there's false teaching, he's just ready to flip the tables. He's going to throw them over. It was a very specific thing. At the temple, outside the temple, there was what was called the court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were non-Jewish people who couldn't go into, uh, who couldn't go into the temple or certain parts of the temple. And there was this court outside where the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, could go, could offer sacrifices, could encounter the presence of God, and offer worship to God. And it was in that outer court that they had set up these money tables where they were charging people an exorbitant amount to change their money into temple money. It was a really disgusting practice. And Jesus comes in and sees, I have come to bring people into the presence of God, and they're doing something to put up a barrier to the presence of God, and Jesus comes and he flips the tables. That's what Jesus was doing. I don't think your disagreement over politics is like in line with what Jesus was doing in flipping tables, right? People are going to be drawn to Christ not through the coherent like nature of our disagreements, but through them being marked by kindness and gentleness. By them saying, hey, when y'all disagree, there's something different on that than what I'm seeing everywhere else around me. We ought to live lives set apart where we flee youthful passions, the need to be right, pursue kindness and gentleness while patiently enduring evil. So let's ask this question. Why should we do it? Why should we do those things? Why should we be set apart? And and I know, like, it's easy. um, (laughs) If you grew up in the church, you know, hey, anytime they ask a question, it's God, Jesus, or the Bible. So it's really quickly, well, God said so. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Say, like, why? why? Paul actually gives us a reason. He gives us the purpose. Our aim in being set apart, living lives of holiness, being gentle and kind, patiently enduring evil, he gives us the why behind that in verse 25 and 26. So that we can get the whole flow, I'm going to start in verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, argumentative, but kind to everyone, even those you don't like, don't agree with, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then here's the why. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The aim, the purpose, is repentance. 
How often, when you're disagreeing with someone, and maybe it is over a theological issue, maybe it is over a, no, this is a hill to die on. We're not called to just passively back down. This has been so convicting to me where, where I've had to honestly ask the question, is my hope, is my aim really another person's repentance? Them realizing that they've swerved from the gospel and that maybe the way that I engage with kindness and gentleness would be the thing that God uses to turn them back. That's what Paul's saying. Maybe through our kindness, through our gentleness, God might grant repentance. This is what he says in Romans 2, that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. The aim isn't winning arguments. It's engaging everyone with kindness and gentleness while like Christ, patiently enduring evil with the hopes that God will draw people to repentance. One of the things that's really helpful for me to remember, do you notice how he says, just at the end of this, there's this little thought, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So there's something very specific that Paul's talking about here, and that was false teaching that was happening in the church. There were people who had said, hey, the resurrection's already happened. And Paul's not like, hey, go after them, go get them, make them feel crazy for preaching this false gospel. He's saying, yes, address it, but do it with grace, with kindness, with gentleness, and remember that behind that false gospel, there's something more than a person. This is what he's saying in Ephesians 6 when he says, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities against the darkness that exists in this world. So we remember when we're confronting a false gospel, this helps me, I think, engage with kindness and gentleness, that it's not, ju- it's not like a person that we're warning against. There is demonic powers uh, at work behind that. So someone who would say, like they were saying in Ephesus, the resurrection has already happened. Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, remember behind that, there's something else going on. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. I think what can happen as we talk about, man, I want to be set apart. I want to be useful. I want to pursue holiness. Yes, because of what God has done for me in Christ. I want to pursue holiness. I want to say yes to Jesus and no to sin. I want to be marked by kindness and gentleness rather than argumentative kind of combativeness. I I want all of those things. I I want my aim to be love, like he says in 1 Timothy 1, and, and I want to see people repent. What do you do when you're like, and and if I'm honest, I just am not good at that. I get so angry when people disagree with me. I do care more about being seen as right than, than being marked by kindness and gentleness. What do you do when you're like, man, I just don't feel very good at this. Remember how Paul started this chapter. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Over and over and over again, we as the people of God lift our eyes and remember Jesus. Remember that we pursue holiness, not to earn God's favor, but because in Christ we already have it. Jesus knew 
that we were going to need to be reminded. And so he gives us this meal. And under your seats, there's communion elements there. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. This is where Jesus wants to remind you that we pursue holiness. We pursue this set-apart life, not to earn God's favor, but because in Christ we already have all of it. All of it. And I am so prone to be wrapped up in all the ways that I get it wrong and all the ways that I blow it and all the ways that I should be better, could be better, ought to be better. And I need to remember, just like Paul says, I need to find strength in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What we're called to is so far beyond our own capabilities in the flesh. 